Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On a warm summer day in July 1994, 30-year-old Pierre Doust was working in his motorcycle shop in North Montreal when he heard a strange voice call out his name. He looked up and saw three men armed with 12-gauge shotguns standing in his shop. Two were wearing masks, the other a motorcycle helmet with a dark visor. One of the men called Pierre's name again. Then they opened fire pumping at least 16 bullets into the shop owner's body before dropping the guns and speeding away in a stolen van. Pierre was rushed to hospital, where he died from his injuries. His killers were never captured, and the murder received little attention at the time. But today, it's remembered as the beginning of a vicious turf war between the Hells Angels and rival bike gang The Rock Machine. Over the next eight years, bombings, arsons, and brazen shootouts terrorized Quebec, leaving more than 160 people dead, including innocent bystanders caught in the crossfire. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at the Quebec Biker War. Outlaw motorcycle gangs first emerged in North America following World War II, when thousands of young, often traumatized and disaffected men were turned home from battle. A lot had changed, and some didn't like it. Plus, they found the transition back to a peaceful civilian life hard to handle. During the war, combat soldiers were trained to ride motorcycles while overseas, specifically Harleys and Indians. As the pace of modern war speeds up, the motorcyclist becomes of more and more vital importance, not only for the carrying of messages, but for liaison and reconnaissance work. So some returning veterans used their severance pay to buy motorcycles and traveled around visiting dive bars and saloons, meeting up with other like-minded vets. They formed a new kind of brotherhood outside the military. The first sign of trouble came on July 4th, 1947, when about 4,000 motorcyclists flooded the small town of Hollister, California. They had come to the area to watch an official race put on by the American Motorcyclist Association. And after the race, some went a bit wild, getting extremely drunk, damaging storefronts, and generally causing mayhem. When Life magazine ran an article on the Hollister Havoc, it portrayed the bikers as drunken, degenerate ruffians. And that didn't sit well with the American Motorcyclist Association. Urban legend has it that after the Life magazine article, AMA put out a media statement arguing that 99% of motorcyclists are good, decent, law-abiding citizens. Whether that statement actually went out is up for debate. Regardless, though, it gave rise to the term one percenter. Maybe you've heard it before or seen it on a patch. It's what members of the four big criminal motorcycle gangs call themselves today, one percenters. They are the small percentage of motorcyclists who are not, by their own admission, good, decent, law-abiding citizens. And that includes members of the notorious biker gang, the Hells Angels. 
Founded in Fontana, California in 1948, a year after the incident in Hollister, the Hells Angels has historically been made up of white men who ride Harley-Davidsons. But investigative journalist and author Julian Scher says the group is much more than a club of motorcycle enthusiasts. I ride a motorcycle. I love motorcycle riding. Lots of my friends ride motorcycles. Um, uh, people can ride motorcycles for all kinds of reasons. You could join a riding club. But the Hells Angels specifically call themselves an outlaw motorcycle gang. And their members um, historically have been charged and convicted with murder, rape, prostitution, drugs. In the 1950s, the club opened two more California chapters, and then in 1961, expanded overseas to New Zealand. It wasn't until about the mid-60s that the Hells Angels became known to the public. In 1966, gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson published a book about his time living, partying, and traveling with the band of outsider bikers, who ultimately turned against Thompson. The memoir, called Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga, made Thompson a sensation, and it shone a spotlight on the bikers. Then in 1969, members of the gang were hired to perform security at the now infamous Altamont Free Concert in California, headlined by the Rolling Stones. As Mick Jagger performed the song Under My Thumb, a Hells Angel stabbed to death an armed 18-year-old right in front of the stage. Unaware that someone had died, the Stones completed their set. When news of the murder broke, the Hells Angels became a household name synonymous with violence and crime. The Hells Angels first came to Canada in 1977 when they took over a Montreal biker club called the Popeyes. And by the early 90s, the Angels had 150 members in Canada and 11 chapters across the country, including five in Quebec. In principle, all the chapters are independent and equal. There is no leader of the Hells Angels. But Mom Boucher does something different. He creates the Nomad chapter, which by its name meant they could go anywhere. He becomes the president of that chapter. Maurice Mamboucher joined the Hells Angels in 1986. The high school dropout already had a long rap sheet when he joined the gang, everything from shoplifting to sexual assault. But Julian Cher says he had all the makings of a leader. He's charismatic. His, he earns the nickname Mom because he kind of takes care of them and is even a bit, a bit uh, uh, pestering. Uh, over people constantly. He had a shrewd business sense. Um, he knew how to make money and organize things. And perhaps most importantly, of course, he was ruthless. He was willing to kill friend or foe to uh, protect his, uh, his empire. From his position as the president of the Nomad chapter in Quebec, Boucher made a power play move. He decrees that all the drugs that are gonna be sold in Quebec all the members are going to have to buy through the Nomad chapter. And the Nomad chapter will be the most powerful. So he becomes the undisputed leader of the Hells Angels in Quebec. In 1994, Mamboucher went even further. He issued an ultimatum that anyone dealing drugs in Montreal had to get it through the Hells Angels. 
You see, Boucher wanted complete control of the Montreal streets, which were the multi-million dollar crown jewel of Quebec's illicit drug trade. Not surprisingly, his ultimatum wasn't received well, in particular by a relatively new rival biker gang called the Rock Machine. Consisting mainly of veteran bikers who previously belonged to other gangs that no longer existed, the Rock Machine emerged in Montreal and other areas of Quebec in the early 90s. Like the Hells Angels, members of the Rock Machine ran tattoo parlors, bars, and motorcycle repair shops. And of course, they also dealt drugs. And there is one other player in this saga that is worth mentioning. Montreal's organized crime families also didn't appreciate the Hells Angels trying to squeeze them out. So they united with the Rock Machine to form what was called the Alliance, or the Dark Circle. In July 1994, they sent a message to the Hells Angels, first by killing Pierre Dous, the man you heard about at the beginning of the episode. He was a member of the bike gang, The Evil Ones, and was a Hells Angels associate. I should point out the difference between an associate and a member. An associate is usually someone from another, smaller bike gang who works with the Hells Angels, but isn't a full-fledged member. Only members are able to wear the angel's colors or emblem, which is called the winged death's head. The day after Doust was gunned down in his motorcycle shop, someone tried to kill another Hells Angels associate. Three masked men with submachine guns fired about 20 shots at 26-year-old Normand Robitaille in front of an auto body shop in Montreal's East End. Robitaille survived the shooting and would go on to become one of the Hells Angels' most powerful members in Quebec. In addition to the two shootings in July 94, members of the Rock Machine also planned to bomb a South Shore clubhouse. It belonged to the Hells Angels support gang called the Evil Ones but police arrested five members of the rock machine before the deed was executed. These three events led to an emergency meeting of high-ranking Hells Angels members from across the province. And by the end of August 1994, all four Quebec chapters voted unanimously in favor of going to war. This was more than a battle for prestige. It wasn't just about macho honor or gang pride. It was about business and market share. At stake were the streets of Montreal and the lucrative cocaine market that came with them. Julian Scher says in the 1990s, there was an explosion of cocaine in Montreal. The average price of cocaine uh, dropped from about $125 or $225 a gram to something like $70 or $80. And the bus, just to give you an idea, you know, the police, the first, you know, the first big bus was something like 50 kilos, and everybody went, wow! Then it was 100. Then by 1994, uh, they stopped the plane with like four tons. And the next year, they stopped the boat with five tons. Um, you know, that's the size of like five cars, five compact cars. Um, so, you know, that in the end is what the Hells Angels were all about. Money coming from drugs, drugs that are going into your streets, your schools, your children. And that's what the turf war was, was all about. Cher says the Hells Angels were pulling in millions of dollars a week from dealing cocaine, carrying hockey bags full of cash into their clubhouses. And they weren't prepared to share any of that money with their rivals. 
After those first attacks on the Hells Angels in July 94, the gang retaliated with a series of violent strikes against their enemies, bombings, arsons, and shootings. Over the next year, nearly 30 bikers in Montreal and other parts of the province were killed. But surprisingly, the war between the Hells Angels and the Rock Machine wasn't initially an overwhelming concern. I think the public and the politicians and the police initially had an attitude of kind of, well, they're cleaning up our own garbage, right? Um, these were gangsters killing gangsters, and it's a bit bloody and it could be noisy, but where was the damage, so to speak? But things changed when innocents started getting killed by standards. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Everything changed on August 9th, 1995. And I have to warn you, the details of what I'm about to tell you are graphic and violent in nature. For two young boys in East Montreal, it started out as a typical hot summer day. The best friends were hanging out with not much to do. Around noon, they decided to wander over to a local school and sat down on a narrow lawn beside the building. Then, all of a sudden, there was a loud boom. Ten-year-old Jan Villeneuve saw a man flying through the air. He turned to look at his friend, 11-year-old Danny DeRocher, and was horrified when he saw the boy lying on the ground, gravely injured. Jan sprinted home to tell his mom that Danny was hurt. He didn't know what was happening. He was unaware that a remote-controlled bomb had blown apart a black jeep parked across the street from the school. Whoever detonated the bomb must have seen the boys sitting on the lawn before they pushed the button anyway. The explosion was so powerful that windows in nearby apartments and parked cars were shattered. 26-year-old Mark Dubay, who police said was the intended target, was inside the Jeep when the bomb detonated. That was who Yan saw flying through the air. Dubay died later in hospital. Little Danny was also taken to hospital. He'd been hit with flying debris. Doctors worked to repair the damage, but Danny died from his injuries four days later. The crime shocked the city, and it became a wake-up call. The image of this beautiful little boy who would never see his 12th birthday, the school kids crying at his funeral, the mother uh, pleading for some kind of justice, so galvanized and outraged the public. The bikers had gone too far. Maurice Boucher had gone too far. The public demanded that police end the biker war before more innocent people were killed. Initially, Montreal police said they were powerless to stop the violence. They blamed drug users for contributing to the bombing campaign. The day after the bombing that killed Danny, Officer Pierre Sangolo from the Special Investigations section said, everyone who smokes a joint or does a line of cocaine is part of the problem. He told reporters, if there were no consumers, there would not be millions of dollars to be made. Clearly frustrated, Sangolo said, if police were going to stop the biker war, they also needed help from judges who could hand out tougher sentences. 
and from the federal government, who could pass anti-gang laws that would make it illegal to be a member of a criminal organization. He insisted Montreal police could not do it alone. But something needed to change. In the month that Danny was killed, the streets of Montreal became a war zone. Molotov cocktails and homemade grenades were thrown at multiple shops owned by bikers. And a bomb destroyed a motorcycle shop and the headquarters of a gang associated with the Hells Angels. In total, at least eight bomb-related incidents were tied to the biker war over a 30-day period. Finally, at the end of September 1995, authorities announced a plan of action. A special police task force was set up that included 75 officers from three different forces, Montreal, Quebec Provincial Police, and the RCMP. The anti-gang squad called Operation Wolverine was the largest in Quebec since the 1970s when police cracked down on the Italian mafia. The squad was devoted to one thing only, going after the bikers as organized crime. In particular, they had their sights set on Maurice Mamboucher, the leader of the Quebec Hells Angels. But he had other plans. Well, Maurice Boucher does something that few other gangsters have done. Gangsters were known to, to kill each other, kill witnesses, uh, collateral damage, kill civilians. Um, but Maurice Boucher basically engaged in a war of terror. He declared war on the system. He said, you're coming after us, we'll come after you. He wanted to randomly kill prison guards, police, prosecutors, journalists, and he didn't care who it was. Boucher's War of Terror began on a warm day in June 1997. 42-year-old Diane Levine, a widow with two adult daughters, had just finished a shift at Montreal's Bordeaux jail. The guard got into her van and headed north on the Laurentian Highway toward home. Suddenly, a motorcycle pulled up beside her. The driver, a 28-year-old member of the Hells Angels, unleashed a hail of bullets on Levine's van, hitting her in the chest. A short time later, a tow truck driver found the woman unconscious and bleeding slumped over her steering wheel. Levine was taken to hospital in Montreal, where she died. Then three months later, in September 1997, a similar attack. Two jail guards dressed in uniform headed to a Tim Hortons in Montreal's East End to grab breakfast. 49-year-old Pierre Rondeau and his partner made the trip at the same time every workday, and that made them an easy target. As they pulled up in their bright blue prisoner transport bus for a mandatory stop at a level railway crossing, two men jumped from behind a clump of bushes. The men rushed the bus and opened fire with semi-automatic pistols. One of them was the same guy who gunned down Diane Levine. Bullets rained down on the guards through the front windshield. Rondo was killed instantly. His partner was badly injured but survived. This second attack provoked a 24-hour wildcat strike by guards at 11 of Quebec's provincial-run jails. The guards said the assassinations were too well-planned to be a coincidence. It was clear they were a new target in the biker war. But why jail guards? Well, Maurice Boucher told his underlings that he wanted to intimidate the justice system, to destabilize it. Some also believed he had a burning hatred for guards after spending many of his younger years in and out of jail. Either way, the result was clear. Boucher had crossed another line in the escalating war, one that would eventually lead to his downfall. 
As a response to the murders, police cracked down on biker-owned strip clubs, tattoo parlors, and motorcycle shops in a massive campaign. One of the men caught up in the sweep gave them a name, Stéphane Gagné. When the 28-year-old was arrested, he quickly flipped, telling police he killed the jail guards on orders from Maurice Mamboucher. Gagné agreed to testify against Boucher, and in exchange, he was charged with just one count of first-degree murder instead of two. Maurice Boucher did not resist when police came to arrest him on December 18, 1997. Members of the Wolverine squad finally got their man as he left Montreal's Notre Dame Hospital where he was being treated for throat cancer. He was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and whisked away to a high-security unit built just for him at a Montreal women's jail. Police knew that rival gang members behind bars would be gunning for Boucher, so they took every precaution necessary to keep him out of danger so that he could stand trial for the murders of Diane Levine and Pierre Rondeau. When the trial started in November 1998, security was extremely tight in the Quebec courtroom. Three guards sat near Boucher, who was shackled inside the prisoner's box. Dressed in a beige suit with a fresh crew cut and glasses, he didn't look like the ruthless killer he was accused of being. More guards stood with their arms crossed over their chests at either side of the door at the back of the room, and a video camera recorded everyone who entered after passing through a metal detector. But that didn't stop Boucher's supporters from filling the courtroom. The Hells Angels would line up in the front row, a beefy guys with their jackets to intimidate the jurors. The case hinged on testimony from Stéphane Gagné, the trigger man who had reached a plea deal with the Crown attorney. He pleaded guilty to one count of first-degree murder and was serving a life sentence when he was brought to court to testify against his former boss. Gagné told the court he was just doing his job when he killed the prison guards, and he didn't know the victims. He was simply following orders from Mum Boucher. Boucher sat with his arms crossed in the prisoner's box, listening intently as Gagné detailed everything from his first meeting with Boucher to the hierarchy of the Hells Angels. With Gagné's testimony, it should have been a pretty straightforward case. But the judge did something that tanked the Crown's chances because he told the jurors that uh, you can't believe anything that this witness said. You can't convict just on the basis of his testimony. And you have to ignore the fact that Maurice Boucher is the president of the Hells Angels. Well, that's not the case. It looked like it was over. Maurice Boucher walks out of the court, king of the city. That night, he goes to a, a, a huge boxing match uh, at one of the arenas in Montreal. And the crowd cheers him. And it just showed the depths that, that Montreal had gone to as a sin city. Boucher's acquittal was shocking, and it elevated his status within the organized crime underworlds. For some in the public, he was even seen as a kind of anti-hero, on par with the likes of other legendary crime bosses like Al Capone. After his acquittal, Boucher still didn't keep a low profile and was often photographed by Quebec crime tabloids, and his parties and events were legendary, often covered by the media. One particular Hells Angels wedding in August 2000 made headlines around the country when beloved Quebec singer Jeanette Renault performed at the nuptials. Pictures from the wedding featured Mamboucher planting a kiss on Renault's cheek. Fans of the singer, known as the godmother of Quebec music, were outraged. 
Renault initially defended her actions by saying, quote, Bikers aren't killers 24 hours a day, and besides, even Jesus kept company with bad people. But as anger against her actions continued to grow, she issued a formal apology for her decision to perform at the wedding. Another pivotal moment in the biker war happened in September 2000, two years after Boucher's acquittal. Veteran Quebec crime reporter Michel Auger was ambushed in the parking lot of the Journal de Montreal, the newspaper where he worked. He was shot six times in the back by a shooter who fled the scene. Miraculously, Auger managed to use his cell phone to call 911 for help. The bullets that hit him cracked two vertebrae but missed his spinal cord by mere millimeters. The Hells Angels had taken out a contract on OJ's life following the publication of an expose he had written in the newspaper about organized crime killings in Montreal. Police said the motorcycle gang wasn't just trying to send him a message, they were trying to kill him. But OJ was not silenced. After making a full recovery, he continued to write about Quebec's biker war until his death in November 2020. As for Maurice Boucher, his troubles were far from over. The Crown appealed his earlier acquittal, and a second trial was held in 2002. This time, changes were made to the courtroom. No Hells Angels were allowed in if they were wearing their colors or uniforms. Although there was at least one spectator that sent a message with a tattoo on his shaven head that read, Kill the Rock Machine. Plus, the jury was set back out of view from the public gallery, and any identifying information about them was kept secret. Unlike the first trial, the Crown attorney successfully established Stéphane Gagné as a credible witness. And on May 2, 2002, following 11 days of jury deliberations, Maurice Mamboucher was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. Standing in the prisoner's box wearing a gray and burgundy tracksuit and beige turtleneck as the verdict was read, he simply raised his eyebrows and pursed his lips. Boucher was automatically sentenced to life in prison, but Julian Cher says that didn't stop him from committing more crimes. Now, remarkably, Maurice Boucher being Maurice Boucher, he's in jail serving multiple life sentences. And what does he do? He tries to organize another murder by using his daughter as a messenger, and he'll eventually get sentenced to an extra 10 years. As for the Hells Angels, they eventually won the war. After eight years of bloody fighting, the rock machine merged with a bigger outlaw motorcycle gang called the Banditos. Some members of the rock machine defected to the Hells Angels, but the remaining members who became Banditos were all swept up in a major police crackdown and sent to jail. With no one left to fight, the Banditos ceded power to the Hells Angels. The Quebec Biker War was declared over in 2002. But thanks to the brazen attacks orchestrated by Mamboucher, police and governments have changed how they deal with outlaw bikers. New laws were introduced that made it tougher for these bad guys to operate. For example, following the death of 11-year-old Danny DeRoche in 1995, the federal government passed legislation that stiffened penalties for convicted offenders who were shown to be members of established criminal organizations. It was the first law in Canada to introduce the concept of a criminal organization offense, and it included a maximum 14-year jail term for anybody who knowingly works with or contributes to a criminal gang. 
It also broadened police electronic surveillance powers, enacted stricter bail provisions, and expanded the number of offenses that could be subject to seizure under proceeds of crime legislation. Then in 2001, in response to the shooting of journalist Michel Auger, the federal government revised the legislation to make it even tougher, even longer prison sentences and more money for police to fight organized crime. But it didn't include an outright ban on being in a gang or wearing gang colors. That's something that both police and prosecutors, as well as many others, have called for. Still, all of the changes made it tougher to carry out crimes that had long been associated with gangs like the Hells Angels. And many members blamed Mum Boucher. While behind bars, he lost power and was eventually removed as head of the Quebec Hells Angels. Earlier this year, in July 2022, Boucher died in jail from throat cancer. He was 69 years old. As for the Hells Angels, Julian Scher says they're still going strong, with about 30 chapters and 400 members in Canada. They're just a lot less visible than they were in the 90s. Um, You don't see a lot of news about them in the headlines. They're able to stay under the radar. They're trying to avoid the errors of Maurice Boucher. Yes, he was a publicity star. Yes, he was in all the tabloids. But that brought a lot of heat. So now, if most people, if you ask them, you know, are the Hells Angels active in your province or in your city, they wouldn't know, which you did know in the 1990s. But Cher says they are most definitely there in your city, selling drugs and controlling organized crime. They're just more subtle about it. Thanks for joining me for this look back at the Quebec Biker War. And special thanks to journalist and author Julian Cher. He's written multiple books, including The Road to Hell, How the Biker Gangs Are Conquering Canada, and Angels of Death, Inside the Biker's Global Crime Empire. I'll put info about Julian in the show notes. And if you want to hear my full interview with Julian, and trust me, you do, he's an amazing storyteller, head on over to Patreon. Become a subscriber and you will always get complete interviews and some other stuff. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash historyofthe90s. Thanks to a couple new friends who joined recently, DLA and Angie Sabatino. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can also find the show on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and Instagram at That 90s Podcast. Also happy to hear from you by email. If you have any show suggestions or other comments, just send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 